If you open your Bibles, if you have them, I hope you do. And if not, the uh, scripture passage will be on the screen. And I just want to remind everyone uh, that uh, we are taking communion at the end. So if you have not received one of the communion capsules, uh, please grab one from the back. You'll just see them sitting out in the foyer. uh, And you can feel free to partake with us. But we're going to be looking at Philippians 2.8, and uh, that's not, we're going to look at a, many different verses, but Philippians 2.8 is going to be our anchor verse where we keep coming back to and relating back to. So if you have your Bibles, let's begin to read. Philippians 2.8 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that your word is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And Father, we thank you, Lord, that we can come and celebrate your life, your death, and on Sunday, your resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. I love Good Friday. Good Friday has been a tradition for most of my life because I was raised in the church. But Good Friday is not something that we uh, are commanded to celebrate in Scripture necessarily. Scripture tells us to celebrate the Lord's Day. And any of these extra services are just added on by the church throughout history. But that's okay because it helps us hone in and, and really dig deep in one of the most important doctrines that we hold dear as, as Christians. And that's the death of Jesus Christ, because without his death, we'd have no resurrection. Without his life, we would have no atoning death, and we would still be left in our sins. But I noticed over the years that as we celebrate Good Friday, there seems to be an imbalance in our understanding and in our experience on our meditations of the death of Jesus. And I want to help us properly understand this so we're balanced in our understanding. And there's two things that you must understand, you must hold together, and that is that the death of Jesus was both grievous and glorious at the same time. It was both grievous and glorious. Jesus was murdered by wicked people, but the sacrifice of Christ was something that God the Father and God the Son had planned before the world began. The Bible says that he was crucified before the foundations of the world. Jesus would be sacrificed. He sacrificed himself this way so sinners So you and I, who commit cosmic treason against God every day of our life, could be saved and be reconciled to him. If it wasn't for the death of Christ, you and I would still be eternally separated from God on our way to hell, destined for hell. But Christ made a way through his grievous death, which made it a glorious death, which is why we call it Good Friday. Unfortunately, some of the church around this time really like to emphasize the grievous aspect. We really like to push the the gruesome side of Good Friday. But in doing so, we miss the good aspects. We forget the glorious side, the important side of Good Friday. So this is what I want you to see today. That the death of Jesus simultaneously reflects the evil and hope of humanity. You can't look at the death of Jesus and not see the evil of humanity, that he was beaten, that he was mocked, that he was murdered and rejected by his own people. Although, as Pastor Dave shared with us, that it was prophesied for years before. But you also can't miss the glorious glorious side of the death, as it was a willful death. Jesus willingly sacrificed himself. And by doing so, he brought about redemption, restoration, and real hope 
for humanity. Amen? Okay, I know it's Friday, but we can say amen, right? Jesus came to bring real hope. So to understand both the grievous side and the glorious side of the death of Christ, we must understand it in context. And to do that, we need to understand three things, which is first, Jesus' humanity, that he was properly, truly a human. He was truly God, truly human. Yes, he was divine, but he was also human. And we need to understand that in his humanity, there was also Jesus' humility. Because in taking on flesh and condescending himself in that nature is itself is a form of humility for Christ to come on and take our properties. But he takes it a step further. He doesn't just condescend himself to be a human, but he also sacrifices himself on the cross, which is the third thing we'll have to understand, which is Jesus' sacrifice. And don't worry, we will go through these quite quickly. So starting with Jesus' humanity, Philippians 2.8 says, And being found in human form. He was found in human form, or he was in the likeness of humanity. This doesn't mean that he just looked like us, that he had a facade of humanity, and, but he was actually just all spirit or anything like that. This means that he actually took our properties on. He had a human nature. He had physical flesh and blood. He wasn't just in the appearance of humanity. He was one of us. One of us. No, uh, he was one of us. So when you read Jesus and the scriptures walking around, interacting with people, he was a real human being. When people interacted with Jesus, they weren't confused about his humanity. If anything, people got confused about his deity, but they were not confused about his humanity. For instance, he was born of a woman, the, 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 the Gospels tell us. It was a miraculous conception, not immaculate conception. That's Catholic. We don't believe that. It was a miraculous conception. The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, and she was miraculously pregnant with the world's Savior. And then you look at his early life. He was a baby needing to be wrapped and swaddled in, clo uh, in cloths. And as a boy, he grew in wisdom and stature. He was learning. He had siblings. Come on, we know how hard it is to have siblings. He became hungry. He got tired. He even got angry without, getting, without sin. And then in Mark 6, we see that Jesus even learned a trade. He became a carpenter. And he also experienced sadness. Jesus' humanity in the gospel was on full display. We found him in human form, flesh and blood, yet fully God. He is not just a mere man. You have to confess the fully God part. He was not a mere man. He was not just a good person, teacher, or prophet that we should follow. He was not just a good moral example that we should teach to our kids. But he was and he is the Son of God of God. That's who Jesus is. And I just want to touch on one passage to make that clear. Philippians 2, 5 to 7 says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. So Jesus has this attitude of humility that we see here that we should exemplify in our lives. But this verse is really pointing to the fact that Jesus emptied himself. Though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And I don't want you to misunderstand what Paul is saying. He's not saying 
Uh, he's not using the word grasp like you and I trying to understand algebra, right? We just can't grasp it. Well, maybe you can, I can't. But, you know, it's not like understanding something. It's not saying that Jesus didn't understand what it meant to be God. He did understand that. What it literally means is that Jesus isn't holding on to it. He's not grasping it, but rather letting go in a sense. He's not holding on. So God the Son, who eternally exists in the form of God, assumed to himself the human form of a servant. The incarnation, or that's just a fancy word for Christ taking on flesh, coming as a human, was not by subtraction of divine attributes, but by addition of a human nature. It doesn't mean Jesus gave up his divine attributes because that would be impossible. He would no longer be God. On the contrary, we see that he maintained his divine attributes throughout the Gospels. Well, what he is doing is laying aside, or maybe he's emptying, you could use that language. He's laying it aside. The, the one who, who is the lawgiver submitted himself under the law. That's what he's doing. He subjects himself to a human frailty and insults and even death. And that in and of itself is humility because God doesn't experience those things. But he willingly took them on. And a helpful way to think about Jesus emptying himself is to think that Jesus poured himself out as an offering. And that doesn't mean that he took all his character qualities or his insides or anything like that and he poured them out. Rather, he took himself in his entirety and poured his whole self out as the sacrifice. He poured his self out in an offering of humility so he could save humanity. Jesus is fully human now and forever, and he is fully divine. He didn't give up his deity. He didn't stop being God, and he didn't even become less of God. To biblically speak of Christ taking on flesh is, is in this emptying of himself is to talk in terms of self-concealment or hiddenness. During Christ's time on earth, he didn't renounce his divinity. He just kept it concealed for a time. Because Christ is the wisdom and power of God, but yet when he came to earth, he came in apparent weakness and foolishness, especially when he died on the cross, as we see in 1 Corinthians 1, to 25. And the reason this matters to us here today is because only a human and divine substitute could take the place of all sinners, taking on the wrath of God that we all deserve, that should have been poured out on us, Christ took it, he stood in the gap, and he absorbed it all, satisfying a holy God that we might be free to live with him. What a sacrifice. Look at Hebrews 2, 17. He says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers, or human, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So Jesus, fully divine, fully human, makes propitiation, which just means he's making a sacrifice, which was himself. Remember, he poured himself out. And this sacrifice is the substitute for you and me, sinners who spit in the face of God with our actions. He died for our sins to be forgiven so that you and that I could be reconciled with this Lord. In his humanity, Jesus demonstrates true and real humility. Which brings us to our second point. Philippians 2.8 says, In being found in human form, he humbled himself. He humbled himself. 
Here's the thing about humility. Humility is not you just walking around saying how much of a loser you are or devaluing yourself because that's just false humility. What you're fishing for is someone to say, oh, no, you're actually really good. Why are you saying yourself? You're not ugly when you truly are. And uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but you're fishing for compliments, right? That's not humility. Humility in a proper understanding is knowing who you are before God and then also knowing who you are in alignment with other people. Humility in its proper understanding, in other words, is knowing that God is a holy God, a transcendent God, far above us, and you're a sinner, far below God. So therefore, you're lower than him. But it also comes into play when we consider, for example, our neighbors. I'm a sinner, and so are my neighbors. So fundamentally, we are the same. And when you come into the church, we're all sinners saved by grace. So we're saints. So when you look at yourself as saints and other people as saints, that means no one else is greater in the eyes of God. That's humility. And Jesus knew himself and had a proper understanding of who he was. And that proper understanding of who he was is that he is divine, that he is worthy of all honor, glory, and praise, that all authority in heaven are due to him and they were given to him. Yet he, here he is in humility. He knew who he was properly, but yet he submitted himself perfectly under the law. Jesus repeatedly said that I'm not here to do my will, right? He says, I'm here to do the will of the one who sent me. Jesus constantly put others before himself. First and foremost, he put God, the Father, and his will before his, his own. But he also put you and I before his well-being. And that's hard for us to grasp because even though we know who God is, we can't help but think that he might be a tyrant. And if you don't know God, that is the picture you have of him, that he is this tyrannical God who demands perfection and then watches you strive to reach his standard and then delights in your eternal destruction because you fail time and time again. But that's not the picture of God we get here in the cross, is it? Yes, God is holy. Yes, God's standards are perfection and nothing else will do. But he doesn't just call you to perfection and then watch you fail and delight in your misery. No, God knows that you can't live up to his holy standard. So that's why he condescended himself to come in the form of man, Jesus Christ, to love and to serve. Our God is not a tyrant who demands perfection then casts us away. On the contrary, he's a savior who humbled himself and fulfilled those perfected commands on our behalf so that we might be reconciled to God. We can't do it on our own. And that's humility. And there's no greater place that we see Christ's humility than on the cross that he was crucified on. Which brings us to our third point, which is Jesus' sacrifice he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, even death naked and exposed, high and lifted up, ribs hanging out, skin ripped off his body, uh, hair ripped out of his face and head, high and lifted up before all to see. But let's be clear here. It's called Good Friday for a reason. We here at FBC are not going to start to pretend like we don't know the outcome. That's not helpful. I'm not sure why Christians like to do this, but they like to engage in a sort of play acting around this time, and they become 
really sad, and they like to put on a show. But my problem with this is that we don't live in the reality of Good Friday alone. We live in the reality of Easter Sunday. We have the privilege of knowing the purpose and intent and accomplishments of the death of Christ now. So when we look at Christ's death, we can say it's a good death because that's our hope. That's our message. That's what we preach, and that's what we need now to have eternal and new life. We know the purpose and outcome. So I'm not interested in play acting today to walk around here all morose and depressed and sad and discouraged, pretending that we don't know that Christ rose from the dead so that all of our fears can be alleviated on Sunday. We know the truth. We know the outcome. Every day for us is the Lord's day. Every day for us is lived in light of the resurrection. We don't know anything else. It's what defines you as a Christian, that Jesus rose from the dead. So as I close, I want to quickly give you three reasons why the death of Christ is good and should fill you with hope. The first reason is Jesus' sacrifice reconciles sinners with a holy God. He's a holy God. When you're a child, you know when you mess up that you have to answer to something greater than yourself, and that's your parents, and it puts fear in you. Every man and woman will stand before a holy God and answer to the cosmic treason that they have committed to him. Every sin. Look at the sin, the first sin of eating of a fruit. Cosmic treason. Rebellion. Separated humanity from God. Your sin separates you from God. I remember when I was a kid, my father had a really nice globe. And my dad liked globes, and I would spin it, and I would let my finger drag across it and say, oh, no, I'm living in the ocean when I get older. And one day, he told me, stop playing with it, and I just wanted to keep playing with it. My fingernail caught the equator, and I ripped the equator clean off the globe. And I went, uh-oh. Should I tell him, or should I just hide it? And so I did what any kid did. I hid, just like Adam and Eve did. And I put the globe back up on the bookcase, and I put the equator around Antarctica. Yes, global warming's my f- And, um... <laughs> And I ran to my dad, and instead of telling him what I did, I said, hey, dad, we're going to play a new game. Every time we walk past the bookshelf, we're just going to look at our feet. Because uh, I was a really smart kid. Um, <laughs> we have and will answer to a holy and transcendent God who doesn't leave us destitute, working for our salvation, which we never could even if we tried. He doesn't just demand perfection and then watch our hardest only to fail and try and try again. He doesn't leave us in our condition of sin and rebellion, deserving hell. Instead, he sent his son to suffer and to forgive sinners that we might be him with eternity. He sent his son to redeem us. Look at 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to who? To God, this holy transcendent God, being put to death in flesh and made alive in the spirit. Friends, You are made to know God. You're made to know God. You were created for his pleasures. He created you to find your ultimate pleasure in him. But outside of Christ, it's impossible because your hearts are darkened, because your eyes are blinded, because your will is bent in on itself. It's broken. But Jesus died on the cross to bring us close to God, to reconcile us with a holy God, to remove the scales from our eyes, to enlighten our heart, to bend our will towards him and not ourselves. That's why it's a great death. And that's why 
It's Good Friday. Secondly, Jesus' sacrifice defeats the devil. His death overcomes the plans and schemes of the devil. He is no longer victorious. The devil is no longer victorious. He is no longer powerful. He is defeated now. Hebrews 2.14 says, Therefore, uh, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook in the same things, that through the death we might destroy the one who has power of death, and that is the devil. Jesus conquered the death and devil through dying. Jesus played the devil. He threw down the Uno reverse card, and the devil thought he won. He said, the seed of the woman who is supposed to crush me, I overcame him. He died. Get the band. Play the music. We defeated God's anointed one. But Jesus played the devil. Jesus, in his death, was atoning for sins, reconciling men and women, you and I, to God. And so he rose with healing in his wings, and he rose in victory and nothing less because Jesus never loses. He's always victorious. And we now who are in Christ are always victorious. Thirdly, Jesus' sacrifice shows us the way of love. In 1 John 3, 16 to 18, it says, By this we know that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? It's a rhetorical question. It doesn't. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Aren't we thankful that our Savior loved us in deed and truth and not just word and talk? Jesus' sacrifice shows us the way of love. And we can only live in this reality when we understand his way. And Jesus' way is that we lay down ourselves for others just as he laid his life down for us. And in his laying down of his life, it was in his death that we find our hope. Jesus' death is the hope of humanity. And I get it. We all understand. We all have the news on our phone. We live in a dark world where people are murdering other people, where people are taking advantage of others, where there's unjust wars and there's sickness and people are dying. And we feel like we live in this hopeless world with just little spurts of hope here and there, little spurts of good. But I'm here to tell you today that your only hope, your only joy, your only true good that you will ever experience in your life is found in Jesus. Nothing else will satisfy or do. Nothing else will take the shame that you feel when you commit sin. Nothing else will remove that condemnation that weighs you down. Nothing else will quench that appetite that you continue to feel, fill with gambling and pornography and lying and gossiping, all these little self-made gods that you run to. Nothing will do, nothing will fill, and nothing will satisfy you except for Christ. The real hope for humanity is found in the death of Christ because his death is the pathway to the resurrection. Without his death, there is no forgiveness of sins, no victory over the devil, no reconciliation with the holy God, and we would still be left damned to hell. The death of Jesus simultaneously reflects the evil and hope of humanity. Wicked men killed Jesus for wicked reasons, but at the same time, a holy God sacrificed his son for holy reasons, and both are true at the same time. He is the hope for all sinners because we are no longer left in our sins. The burden of sin and shame that comes with it is taken away. He cleanses the filthy and pardons the guilty. We are not left in our sins. God will forgive you of your sins. He has died even for those deep and dark secret sins that you said you would take to the grave with you, and he has forgiven you. He doesn't turn a blind eye. 
He sent his son. He paid the highest price. He satisfied his wrath through the destruction of Jesus. We are bought with a price. We are redeemed. He is not only just our creator or maker, but now he's our savior. And we have been saved by God to live with him for eternity. And because we are redeemed, we are also restored. Restored in our relationship with God. Either this relationship was a forsaken relationship or never even started or one that's just been forgotten. You are restored to be accepted by him. And we are to enjoy him, know him, and commune with him. And that changes us fundamentally because we're not just redeemed and restored, but we're remade. We are new creations. We have been purified for good works. And that's where the hope is. Think about it. We can tell people all we want to stop murdering, to stop sinning, to stop fighting, to stop going to war, to stop taking advantage of people. That's not going to make an impact. But you know what will make an impact? Is the fact that Jesus changes sinners to saints. Our real hope is that the wicked is changed like we have been changed. Because there's no difference between the people that we call wicked and us at the end of the day, other than the fact that we have been saved by grace, and so can they. I don't just want to see captives set free. I want to see captors set free, changed so they no longer take captives. I want to see the wicked transformed. I want people who think there is no hope and ready to give up to realize there is hope because Christ died, because he humbled himself to the point of death. He is your hope. You who are sitting here in this room, you who are joining online, he is your hope and he will transform you. He'll restore you and he'll not leave you in your sins. He will save you. His death is both grievous yet glorious because he provided a way that we might find true and lasting hope. It's Good Friday. We mourn that our sin sent Christ to the cross, but we rejoice that he didn't stay dead, that he made a way that we could be free with Christ. So let's not play act today. Let's not pretend to be sad instead. Let's rejoice that Christ died, but no longer is he dead, and, and he rose so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. If you're moved to godly sorrow, that's okay. I thank, I'm thankful for that. And I pray it grows to repentance. But let's not just put on a show today. Let's rejoice like Job did because he knows his Redeemer lives. Amen.